Welcome back to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. I hope you've been following our series on harsh sentencing for juveniles. Last time, we met Marsha Levick, co-founder of the Juvenile Law Center in Philadelphia. That was back in 1975. We have spoken a little bit about the history of juvenile justice in America and the many accomplishments of the Juvenile Law Center. We have seen many shifts in policy wherein sentencing children is concerned. There is still so much work to be done. Can you, Marsha, can you cite some current cases like the Brett Jones case in Mississippi to kind of bring us up to speed as to what is happening in juvenile justice today? Well, I think we're at an interesting time um, in my field. For the last 15 years, beginning in 2005, when the United States Supreme Court banned the juvenile death penalty, up through 2016, when the court ruled that its ban on mandatory life without parole sentences for children was retroactive. And so the 2000 or so men and women who had received those sentences would have an opportunity to be resentenced. Um, that was an incredibly uh, robust and exciting time, I think, in my field, because we saw a lot of change over a pretty short period of time. Um, and had a series of wins at the U.S. Supreme Court that really changed the conversation about kids in the justice system. Today, um, we confront a very different United States Supreme Court, and we are less optimistic about what the future holds. I am going for now to feel optimistic that we will not lose the victories of the last 15 years, um, but I'm also very realistic in terms of recognizing um, that the brakes may have been put on for now. Um, and I think that was illustrated by the recent decision that the U.S. Supreme Court issued in Brett Jones' case. Brett Jones was one of the Miller individuals. He received a mandatory life without parole sentence for um, a homicide that he was convicted of in Mississippi uh, when he was under the age of 18. He was resentenced as he was entitled to by the U.S. Supreme Court ruling banning mandatory life without parole, and he received another sentence of life without parole. And the issue before the United States Supreme Court had to do with a, a kind of a, a detail or a nuance of the court's ruling on life without parole for kids which was under what circumstances could we imagine it would still be constitutional to impose that sentence on a child. And the Supreme Court, both in the Miller decision and in the subsequent decision, Montgomery versus Louisiana, where the court ruled Miller to be retroactive, the majority of the court in opinions written by Justice Kagan and then by Justice Kennedy, um, were quite explicit in the narrowness of those rulings, that the, the category of youth that they envisioned who could continue to receive these sentences of life without parole uh, would be a tiny fraction of all youth convicted of homicide in this country. And the court often utilized um, the term of permanent incorrigibility. They, they wrote over and over again in both of those opinions that 
only those youth whose crimes reflected permanent incorrigibility could receive a sentence of life without parole. The issue that Brett Jones brought before the court was explicitly that question. Uh, he argued to the court that there was no finding in his case of permanent incorrigibility, even though he yet again received a life without parole sentence. And, um, you know, I, I invite the audience to not think this is a technical term. Uh, permanent incorrigibility is what it sounds like, that someone is permanently broken. Right. And the odds of any child being permanently broken, if we just think about it intuitively as parents, as grandparents, as sisters, as brothers, as mothers, um, are slim. There, there aren't children who are permanently broken. Virtually everyone uh, is capable of change as they go through the natural course of human development. Um, and so the court was invited to say that that mattered. And uh, absent that kind of determination that no child could essentially be sentenced to die in prison. The new majority of the Supreme Court that we are living with today declined to make that determination and essentially ruled that there was no specific finding that the Mississippi trial court in Brett Jones' case was required to make in order to reimpose that sentence of life without parole. The decision didn't undo what the court had said in the other sentencing cases about the importance of the scientific research that it relied upon in striking those extreme sentences. It was clear that all of those rulings were still good law. It rejected arguably just a tiny, um, you know, a very specific facet of that, of those rulings, um, was unwilling to give explicit guidance to sentencing courts about when they could impose or not impose a sentence of life without parole. Um, I think it remains to be seen what the fallout and what the consequences of the Brett Jones ruling are. Um, we don't know yet. The decision just came down about six weeks ago. Um, there, there were things as a lawyer, there were things in the court's decision in the Brett Jones case that I will hang my hat on, <laughs> I will point to, that I think will continue to help the men and women who may be facing the possibility of a life without parole sentence. But it was um, it was a very explicit statement that it's a new era. And I think when I think about the work that I do, I, I have to look away rather than look to the United States Supreme Court right now as the guardian of children's rights. I say that, um, you know, with with a sense of reality um, and dismay. It doesn't mean I'm without hope. Uh, right. I couldn't say this if I was without hope. Um, I think that there are actually amazing Supreme Courts in states across the country at the state level that have been um, really progressive and protective of children's rights and, and other marginalized groups' rights. Um, and we'll continue to press those courts um, as we have to utilize state constitutional provisions um, to fill in the blanks if we can't get those, uh, can't necessarily get the safeguards we want at the U.S. Supreme Court level. Um, I just wanted you to maybe um, clarify just a tiny bit about the case. Um, people who 
probably don't know uh, what he, how old he was and what his crime was. Can you kind of give us that in a nutshell? Sure. So he was, um, he was 16 or 17 years old and I, I, sorry that I can't remember exactly, um, but 16 or 17. And he was convicted of killing his grandfather. Um, he had a fight with his grandfather. Um, he was angry with his grandfather for how he thought he was responding to a relationship that Brett was in. Um, and he stabbed his grandfather several times. There's not any question about his guilt in the case. Um, he, he killed him and he was found guilty of that. Uh, but we, we have come to a point in our jurisprudence in this country in terms of how we sentence children that it's not the only, th the only thing that matters isn't the crime that we have to pay much more attention to the individual um, and to the characteristics of the individual, particularly when they're children. And one of the things that I worry about in this work going forward is that without really clear guidance from the U.S. Supreme Court, which we didn't get from the Brett Jones case, is that we can't necessarily be sure that sentencing judges won't be preoccupied with the crime, which will always be murder in these cases. We know that. The Supreme Court knew that. Um, these are the most serious crimes that anyone can commit. But the court also was very clear that children who commit these crimes are not the worst of the worst and that we need to treat them differently. And I, I hope that message continues to resonate. I hope it continues to drive a different attitude toward how we think about kids who commit these crimes, but but I worry that we may lose sight of that. Yeah. Um, there, there's something also that I wanted to bring in, and that is um, something called adverse childhood experiences. Um, that That is something that should be part of each of these cases certainly was part of his case. Um, can you speak a little bit about what that is? Yeah, um, I'm not going to speak about it like a psychologist would. Okay, that's all right. <laughs> but I, but I can um, definitely give your listeners a basic sense of what um, ACEs stands for and right. stands for adverse childhood experiences. It's a, it's a measure that psychologists have developed um, to examine. Uh, situations or circumstances that children have experienced in their lives that are likely to be traumatizing. So chief among them, for example, is the degree to which a child may have been exposed to violence, um, violence to themselves, violence to a family member. They may have witnessed violence or they may have experienced violence. And the concern about the consequences of those experience those experiences for kids is is the the likelihood or the degree to which that traumatizes children and creates trauma and we know again the psychologists know through research that they've done that children who have experienced significant trauma as they are growing up um, will respond to situations differently than a child who hasn't so we 
probably many of us have heard the term fight or flight, um, where we either you know fight and stay or we run away from a situation. Those responses can be driven by these kind of adverse early childhood experiences that cause us to um, perceive in the moment and then react in the moment based upon sort of what's rattling around in our heads and in our psyches. And it has become as much as we, uh, you know, we talk about the teenage brain and how it's still developing and we talk about developmental maturity and immaturity added into that mix, maybe it's kind of like a three-legged stool. There's neuroscience, there's the developmental science, and then there's this ACEs, which is really looking at childhood trauma as being another component of what we need to understand about children as we think about their involvement with the justice system. Yeah, that's it's so important. The uh, Sentencing Project issued a report in 2020 uh, stating that about 79% of, of kids um, in prison witness violence. And then we have girls. We know that uh, in terms of women who are incarcerated, that 70 or 80% of them have been victimized before they ever came to prison. So back it up to, you know, juvenile uh, facilities. So those those factors are so very very key in exactly just as you said is how we look at children how we look at children. Um, there there are still uh, quite a few states. Um, I was looking at a list of them as to how many of them still have children uh, serving life without parole. Why are there still states that um, are permitted? to keep these children and not give them the hearing that was um, spelled out in, in the decision retroactively, you know, looking um, at a life without parole. Uh, there, there are a couple of um, points to make here. One is that um, when Miller was decided, Miller was decided in 2012. Um, right. It wasn't declared to be retroactive across the country until 2016. Right. Um, in a state like Pennsylvania, um, our Supreme Court did not rule Miller retroactive. So that meant that for four years, the 500 plus individuals who were serving mandatory life without parole sentences in Pennsylvania were sitting in prison. They had no access to resentencing hearings because our court didn't consider them to be entitled. It took the U.S. Supreme Court to make that decision in 2016. Right. We were fortunate in Pennsylvania, we moved very quickly. Um, I credit our courts with fairly quickly sentencing in about three years, about 450 individuals and about 250 of them have now come home. Hmm. But, um, you know, there were, in 2012, we thought about 2,000 men and women who were serving mandatory life without parole sentences, now unconstitutional. Um, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Louisiana were three states that didn't allow for those individuals to be resentenced until the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Montgomery four years later. Michigan, Louisiana, and Pennsylvania collectively housed probably 60% of all of the men and women serving life without parole in the country. Um, Pennsylvania, as I said, had about 525. Michigan and Louisiana each had 300 plus. So um, that left a huge backlog 
of individuals, hundreds of individuals who are waiting to be resentenced. There are still folks waiting to be resentenced in Michigan, um, a smaller number in Louisiana, but still some who are waiting to be resentenced in Louisiana. So there's a group that just haven't gotten their day in court yet. They're on the way, but they haven't gotten their day in court yet. There are also individuals who were resentenced to life without parole. Um, after the Miller decision, they had a hearing like Brett Jones and were resentenced to life without parole. There's also another whole category, hundreds of men and women across the country who didn't receive mandatory life without parole sentences, but received discretionary life without parole sentences. And there is an open question across the country, and this is state by state, whether or not, because they had some kind of a hearing, um, whether or not that hearing was sufficient mm -hmm. under Miller to ensure that their youth was properly taken into account before they could receive that life without parole sentence. We're still litigating those cases. Um, we're gonna be litigating those, litigating those cases for a long time, but it means that there is, there remains hundreds of, of men and women convicted of homicide when they were children uh, who today remain sentenced to die in prison. Very, very sad, very, very sad. Well, we are coming to the end of our our segment here. Is there anything that you want to leave us with uh, for our listeners to think about? Um, I, I want your listeners to remember that um, children are children. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's no question but that uh, the children that we're talking about today and that we talked about in our prior meeting um, were convicted of the most serious crimes that you can be convicted of. But it doesn't mean that we have to throw them away. Uh, they, so many of them have experienced extreme childhood trauma, um, abuse themselves, and most importantly, they're all capable of change and they will change. And I hope that we can all see our way um, to see their humanity, uh, to treat them uh, in a humane and dignified way and to give them a second chance. Yeah, that's a wonderful way to leave our audience thinking about this whole issue. Well, I, I wanna thank you so much, Marsha, for your time today and all your experience in this field. Um, I so appreciate your willingness to be my guest. And next time, I wanted to tell our listening audience that um, I have a, a special guest. Her name is Sarah Cruzan. Uh, do you know her, Marsha? Yes. 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 All right. I, I've been writing to her for a very long time before she ever got out of prison. She was uh, 15 and got life without parole. She served 19 years and she was released in 2013 and she has agreed to uh, be my guest next time. So uh, very much like Abdullah, um, a firsthand experience as to what that was like. So I hope Two my- people uh, deserve second chances. Yes, yes. I hope uh, my listeners will tune in to continue this discussion about juvenile life without parole. And thank you again for being on, on the program. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time on Pursuing Justice.